This episode is brought to you by Roundtable Group, the experts on experts. We've been connecting attorneys with experts for over 25 years. Find out more at roundtablegroup.com. Welcome to Discussions at the Roundtable. I'm your host, Noah Balmer, and today's guest is Professor Rand Decker. Now, Professor Decker teaches civil engineering, environmental engineering, and construction management at Northern Arizona University. Uh, he has authored numerous scholarly works with a focus on technology in cold regions and alpine infrastructure. Uh, Professor Decker has over 30 years of experience in expert witnessing and holds a PhD in cold regions engineering, a type of civil engineering from Montana State University. Professor Decker, thank you so much for joining me here today at the Roundtable. With pleasure, Noah. Thanks for asking. Of course. Let's jump into it. Cold climate engineering is an interesting focus. How'd you get started in that? And uh, when did you first get involved in expert witnessing? Well, the cold regions engineering thing comes from the fact that I have an enormous love and affection for mountains and what mountains are for society and cultures and for the people that live in them and for the people that visit them. And mountains are constantly being bombarded for their water, for their recreational development, for their power potential. And so there's a need for thoughtful engineering infrastructure development in mountainous regions. That was the root of it. And my first forays into expert witnessing came as a result of a request from Fulbright and Jaworski, a well-known intellectual property house that had a dispute associated with a snowmobile ski. Hmm. And so it was something I was able to provide some value to their um, arguments. And from that, I think my reputation followed me to round table. And then I had an overture from round table to participate again in a cold regions uh, litigation environment and took that up as well. And I, never looked back. Uh, all of my subsequent expert witness work has been through Roundtable. When you got that first call before Roundtable, was that kind of uh, out of the blue or, or were you looking for expert witnessing gigs? That's an excellent question. No, it was pretty much out of the blue. Um, they were looking for somebody that knew cold regions and skiing and snow machines and snowmobiling and, uh, that's not an enormous population of individuals. And so they <laughs> yeah, found it's really me. niche. <laughs> and it was intellectual property litigation. And I had, even at the time, a few accepted claims of my own. And so I've remained my whole career attracted to intellectual property litigation. But there's a much more to expert witnessing than just IP. Sure, of, of course. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your niche. You, I'm sure you get a lot of work for when people need that specific thing. Do you feel that having a niche is important to expert witnesses? Well, you're asking, sort of asking the choir the question. For me, having a niche was absolutely critical to developing a component to my career in expert witness. Um, so I do very much believe that to be successful, at least in terms of being selected from a smaller pool, um, having expertise in a narrow niche is valuable. When, when you get those calls, what's the vetting process like? What are the sorts of questions that they ask you? What are the sorts of questions that you ask uh, the attorney who potentially is engaging you? And how do you decide whether or not you're going to accept an engagement? Now, that's a question somebody thinking about getting into expert witness work needs to consider really thoughtfully. Hmm. 
How do you decide to take up a perspective opportunity to serve as an expert? For me, um, it's pretty simple. I have to believe it's true. I I can't argue things that I don't believe are true for the professional or, or compensatory value in it. So I have said no to a handful of, of expert witness opportunities because I didn't think they had it. And so that's sort of important to me coming out of those first engagements. And they're they're just as curious about that with you, which is to what degree do you have confidence or faith in their arguments behind their litigation? And they don't want somebody there trying to argue it if they don't believe it either. So that's that's the first engagement is to see if we're if we're all swinging a bat for the same client in the same way. So, so you've decided you've uh, decided that you're going to take an engagement because the fact pattern is such that at least you can uh, provide an opinion that's in your wheelhouse and that the facts of the case are are true with the capital T. You know, they're not. There's no funny business going on. Um, what are the other things that you look for? What? How can you tell if an engagement is going to be a quality engagement from the get go? Well, early on, you have to have a relationship with the attorney or the attorney and and his or her staff, and as well, the client that that attorney is representing, you have to understand that, that there's an opportunity for a mutual collaborative respect relationship. So I respect their skills as, as counselors of the law. Right. And I find in a hurry that I'm attracted to people that provide some respect for what they don't know that I do. And that's the basis of the relationship. Do they always know what they don't know? Oh, that's now you're hitting the nail on the head. That's one of the most critical aspects of being an expert. And it precedes all the detail associated with the case. And it's what I call the metadata of the case. No, frankly, a lot of litigators don't know yet what they don't know. But the wise ones know that they're ignorant. There's nothing wrong with ignorance. There's a lot wrong with stupidity. But if you're ignorant, there's a room. There's room to, one, admit it, and then to fulfill or backfill that ignorance to the point that you and the attorney are successfully knitting together the technical arguments that the attorney will proceed with legally and that you will back up um, technically. So you are a teacher, so you understand as a professor uh, how to best inculcate the attorney with the necessary knowledge to properly prosecute or defend a case. You have been, I believe I read in your bio, both on the plaintiff and, de- and defendant side. What, what, are, uh, what are some of the differences? Well, the burden of proof is on the prosecution. So the development of prosecutorial arguments is much more aggressive than the sort of siege mentality that you may take on associated with working in a defense arena. Hmm. But nonetheless, you you have to equip the walls of your castle if you're the defendant um, from, you know, the, the alleged damages and so forth that are coming at you from the prosecution. But it is, it's two very sort of different stances. One is a, an offensive stance and the other is a defensive stance. Do you have any pre- uh, preferences vis-a-vis defense versus plaintiff? I like working the defense for the little guy. 
Do, do you have any memorable cases uh, that you can talk about? Obviously, you don't have to give any specifics, but that kind of uh, you know inform the way that you go about being an expert witness or made you feel good about defending the little guy? Well, one of the, the early on forays into expert witness work was this um, job with this snowmobile ski. Mm-hmm. And the individual who had patented this snowmobile ski was a just a small timer. It was an individual um, who did a lot of snowmobiling in Utah where there's a lot of soft snow. So he'd invented this soft snow ski. Well, one of the major snowmobile manufacturers saw it and went, that's a piece of work, and knocked it off. And no, they ended up paying damages to that guy and, and his patent. Um, and that felt good. I have that was a good one. Um, a handful of others, um, if it has to do with safety or environmental health and sustainability, those are attractive to me personally. Um, but um, once again, it, it doesn't have to be at the root, but it makes it a more fulfilling engagement. You know, if you can see multiple value added opportunities in the course of being an expert. Does that enter into the calculus at all over whether or not you uh, accept an engagement if it's going to, ha- you know, do some public good? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's if you look at the differences between civil engineers and all other forms of engineering, at the heart of it is this idea that we work in the public domain and we work in the environmental domain for improvement. So I think civil engineers are sort of predisposed to be knitted up that way. And, you know, I'm an ardent greenie from the 70s, so that helps, too. <laughs> of course. Um, as a civil engineer, you know, with a very particular niche, how do you remain an expert? What's, what are the sorts of things that you do to keep up on your expertise? You're a published author. You have a, a lot of um, you've written for um, various and sundry academic journals and whatnot. I imagine that that research is definitely part of uh, remaining an expert. But uh, be, besides teaching, what else do you do or recommend that experts do to to stay on top of their area of expertise? That's a that's a great question as well. Well, for a start, as you mentioned, I teach, and I do research in the very niche that I turn around and provide expert witness opinion in, which, for example. Um, alpine hazards, snow avalanches in ski areas and in transportation corridors, um, snow hydrology as a water supply, and snow making, which is a not new um, in terms of a technology, but it's a technology that's exploded on the scene, mostly climate-driven here in the last decade. So you can't be a cryospheric scientist without paying attention to that development. And the third way to be successful in maintaining your expertise is to not only work as an expert witness, but to do consulting in these niches. So you go out and you, you know, you get hired by a ski area to do snowmaking design, or you get hired by a department of transportation to assist in avalanche mitigation, or you get hired by a state water supply entity to, to advise on, on snow hydrology. And so those all mean all three of those things, teaching, research and external consulting, support your expertise as a consultant. And the question is super valuable because your credibility as an expert will get called into question. And you can't just ask your own uh, counsel as well as opposing counsel to trust you that you're an expert. You have to be able to demonstrate it. 
Right, right. Yeah, that that makes sense. You you mentioned um, outside consulting. Um, what about expert consulting? Obviously, there are both uh, consulting expert witnesses, and then there's expert witnesses that are going into depositions and trials. Have you done both uh, types of work? Have you been engaged by attorneys as a consulting witness? The majority, all of my expert witness work has been as a testifying expert. So I've provided reports and depositions, and if it goes to trial, testimony at trial. But I have had, you know, I have had engagement sort of cut out from under me because they settled, you know, right there, sort of draft report phase. And so I certainly was working as a consulting expert up to that point. Let's talk about some of that trial testifying work. How do you keep cool under pressure? What are the sorts of things that newer experts might encounter? How do you work with your attorney to to be prepared and ready to go in a trial situation? For me, Noah, it's a matter of not talking too much. I'm a lecturer by profession, so talking in public is I'm comfortable with it. And explaining difficult concepts to people who are anxious to understand them, but may not understand them thoroughly, um, is something that I can do pretty well, both in an expert environment as well as in a classroom. Um, But the challenge is to let other people talk, particularly your own counsel. Um, You're their expert, and they don't want to just hear you talk. They want to ask you questions that they seek answers to. And so if you're one who's a talkative character, um, talk less, think faster. Do you have any particular preparation techniques that you have found really work for you? For example, mock, uh, yeah, mock cross-examinations. No, I, I can get up on my toes and get ready for deposition and trial pretty well. And sure. probably the most valuable way to get ready for that is whatever reviews and notes and scopes of work that you've fielded up to that point, go look at them all again. Mm. Not the night before, but the week before. And then leave the Red Bull and the coffee at home the day of deposition and trial. So make sure that you have everything pretty well memorized. Have you have you been in situations where your attorney uh, overloads you at the beginning of an engagement with lots of stuff to read? That's fair enough. Um, what I've come to realize, not just in expert witness work, but at the onset of anything new, um, there's this anxiety associated with how much of it you don't know or understand yet. Mm-hmm. But if you look back at all of the instances where that occurred in the past, by the time you got into it a ways, you were comfortable with the content. So that initial anxiety is something that needs to be sort of tamped down. And <laughs> especially with respect to the idea that the attorney's really excited to get you, get this material loaded with you and get your opinions back out of you. So they're not doing it to to burden you, but because they want you to have everything they think you need to produce a valuable opinion for them. Do you feel that you typically have sufficient time to go go over everything that you need to in order to write your report and to form an expert opinion and on occasion to do any additional research on little things that you might not know the answer to? I pretty much always make sure I have that time, Noah. And then that's a responsibility both to yourself as well as your your client. Um, and if you're not getting enough time or you don't have all the material you think you need, then you have to ask for it. 
But are there occasions when one gets rushed by attorneys? Absolutely. And there's probably a good reason. They're probably getting rushed by a judge or somebody else. So um, if you need more time, take it. Don't go in half-cocked. Is that also something that can be dealt with in the vetting process to figure out where you are along in the process and make sure that there is sufficient time before whatever is required from you is due? That's an interesting question. It it sort of presupposes how much you're going to know about the case early on. And I do think it's important to establish in the early exchanges that you will need you will need to take the time it will take for you to become comfortable with your opinions. Now, most most of these environments come with the sort of caveat that you are not to proceed without counsel's authority or instructions. Um, and that's fair enough. So just what you need, ask count for counsel early, get the hours authorized and, and uh, you know, get some big loads in the chamber so that you're ready. Because you don't want it to... There's no feeling worse than walking into a classroom and not being ready or walking into a deposition and not being ready. It's just some of the worst feelings in the world. Let's talk a little bit about your approach with the attorney, him or herself. Do you take a proactive approach if you feel that something about the case is just wrong? In other words, it's something that you didn't catch in the vetting process? No, I think you have a responsibility to the client, to your attorney and their client, that if you see something flawed, you have to get it out on the table. And that's not just expert witness thing. That's engineering thing. Your personality is not attached to errors. Your personality is attached to not fixing errors before they get loose. And so, um, yes, I think very much the expert has a responsibility to engage when they see flaws uh, moving up, moving up the line. Before we wrap up, do you have any last tips for newer expert witnesses in particular or attorneys that work with uh, expert witnesses? You mentioned earlier the idea that um, that a lot of times an expert will feel sort of inundated early on. Mm -hmm. And similarly, if the expert tends to be a talkative type, the attorneys might feel a little inundated with, with uh, technical jargon and, and information early on. I think it's important for the attorney and the experts to agree on the meta questions behind the technical issues in the litigation. Because once you agree on the foundational issues, then it's sort of hard to fall off the edge of the world because you didn't get those established early on. And so metadata and calm, thoughtful thinking early about what it is you're doing together um, needs to take place. That's, that's sage advice. I do want to follow that up with one question. When you're, you're talking about expressing these complex concepts to attorneys and then possibly juries or, or judges, um, how, do you, how do you parse that for people who might not be technical uh, in your very niche, uh, very specific area? Excellent. No, the answer to that comes from my experience as a teacher in an engineering environment, which is you have to break the concepts down and if you can provide examples that most people would have some experience with, boiling water in cold weather and or scraping the ice off your windshield and it didn't snow the night before, there are ways that you can provide mechanisms for people to understand the concept you're talking about from their everyday experiences. And 
you can sort those out. And if you're good at it, you can think them up on the fly as you're, you know, being served questions from opposing counsel or even, you know, test questions, trial questions coming from your own counsel. So uh, getting it anchored back to things that people can understand on a on their daily basis from their daily experiences is at the heart of getting people to understand concept things, not complex things. Excellent advice. Professor Decker, thank you so much for joining me here today. Good. I hope it was valuable. And um, for all of those that are out there getting ready to take their first shots at working the expert witness arena, it's really a wonderful crossover between your engineering way of seeing the world and a whole nother professional arena that's just as clever and thoughtful as you think you are. Well said, and I completely agree. And thank you to our audience for joining me for another discussion at the Roundtable. Cheers. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Discussions at Roundtable. Our show notes are available on our website, roundtablegroup.com. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening apps. 